Last time we met, we were dealing with the Birchat HaShachar, the morning prayers, in, in the morning blessings, right? So the blessings in which we express our gratitude for different aspects and, and elements of our lives. And we got up into the different blessings that men and women say, right? So we said the, the blessings that men say is, Shalom Asani Isha, that we basically bless God or thank God for not having made men, bless God for not having made them women. And then women have a different blessing. They say, Sha'asani Kiritsono, that God made us according to his will. And certainly from a modern perspective, this seems a very benighted, a very backwards view of things that for men to express their gratitude for not having been made a woman. And that's something which I think should trouble people given today's perspective. So tonight we're going to dedicate a standalone class on this topic alone. Now, I want to stress from the onset that while I'll be dealing with the topic of Judaism's view of gender roles, we can deal with this class. It could be a 10-part series in terms of the different elements of how it expresses itself in different questions and different aspects of Judaism. We're going to do a broad overview. It's going to detail Judaism's one of the basic views of the ideas, okay? And we won't be getting into too many specific topics today. What I want to try to focus on is the Hirschian, Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch's approach to this question, okay? So we're going to be drawing from different places across Hirsch's philosophy about the idea of gender roles, just a tiny bit of background about who Rev Hirsch was. Rev Hirsch was born, I think, in 1808, I believe, in Germany, in a Germany that was just starting to have a reform movement. And throughout his lifetime, the reform movement became ever more ascendant, right? At one point, it was the only um, official congregation in Frankfurt was actually a reform movement. That's how powerful the reform movement came rapidly in Germany. Now, what happened is, though, he fought back and he fought back hard and he tried to express the authentic Torah view about everything related to Judaism. And he was very, very successful in doing so. So in many places in the early 1800s and throughout his commentary, he does describe the specific questions that we're going to deal with tonight. And I wanna to try to follow based on his perspective. In this previous week's Parsha, we had an interesting idea. We have the famous verse of the Ahafta l'reacha kamocha, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, famously, we know that when Hillel was approached by a potential convert and asked to express the Torah's views while he's standing on one foot, he said, I'll tell you the Torah's views. That's what the Torah expresses. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The rest, that's all commentary. I think we could adapt that a little bit, that if we can express one principle, a unifying, a fundamental principle about the perspective that Judaism has on men and women, we can then use that principle to deal with any specific issues that might arise. So I'm going to just try to express that principle. And like I said, if people have questions, well, how does it affect this? How does it affect that? Let's save that till the end, okay? Now, before we start, one more introduction. It is very important to differentiate between societal attitudes towards gender roles and Judaism's attitude towards gender roles. So I can only speak for myself. I can only speak for the people in my specific circles, who, the people in, in the family that I grew up with and in my extended family that I grew up with. And we, we uh, grew up with a, a, a definite, definite respect for women, a lot, a lot of strong women in our family. Um, of my uh, four sisters, three of them are PhDs. Uh, one of them has dual masters in, in public health and mathematics. Uh, my sister-in-law has a PhD. My wife has a master's. 
this is a family where women are not afraid to express themselves and are respected as such, right? So personally, this was not something that we ever dealt with in terms of making a blessing, in terms of asking a boy to say in the morning, and to walk around and stick out his tongue at his sister, that ah, I wasn't made a woman and you were. That was not the value system that I grew up with. I do not speak though for society at large. What I mean to say is if someone gets the sense in certain segments of society that indeed they look down upon women, that does not necessarily reflect the Torah's view of women. I think that's a very important point to make. So do not necessarily judge Judaism by its practitioners because not always will that reflect exactly what Judaism is supposed to reflect. Now, if you find someone who is a great Torah scholar, someone who has dedicated their lives to learning Torah, right? And they still have a, a flawed attitude towards X, Y, and Z, then perhaps that is reflective of Judaism's attitude, okay? But I, I venture to say that you will not find someone with that attitude towards women. That's a point that's important to, to differentiate right from the beginning. So if someone says, you know, one time I interacted with a, with a fellow in Mea Sha'arim and the way he expressed his attitude towards women was very disrespectful. I, I don't answer for that. That's not, that's not what I'm coming to answer up today. I'm coming to try to express a belief that I think is authentic, traditional Jewish belief. And whether or not he subscribes to that, whether or not he is influenced by society, I can't speak for that. Now, whenever we try to figure out how much a specific society or religion values any given person or object or a set of values, it is important to first figure out what its values are. When I was preparing for this class, by the way, I, I was speaking with Leah. And, and uh, typically when I give a class that is uh, somewhat um, uh, more complicated. I definitely run it over with Leah beforehand, just uh, as my soundboard. Um, this class, she actually helped me more than usual because she's thought a lot about these topics, as you would imagine. She wrote her, uh, in, in, uh, in seminary, she wrote her, her dissertation, so to speak, uh, about this topic. So she gave me a lot of the ideas I'm going to express. I want to say from the beginning, I'm expressing my gratitude to her for that. And I actually asked her, would you just give the class for me because you'll do a better job. But she, uh, we, we got our vaccines yesterday, so she's not feeling so great. So <laughs> she's not gonna give the class, but really, really she should give the class instead of me. That being said, she told me you have to say over the story. What story? There's a famous story, right? It's a parable. And the parable goes like this. There's a fellow who is very, very poor and he has a wife and many children. And he is told, that there is an island out there. You have to travel through the jungle and then take a boat. And it's a, a, a one-year journey to get to this island. But this island is an incredibly wealthy island. And on this island, there are diamonds all over the place, ethically sourced diamonds, right? You just have to get there and come back and you will have these diamonds and we will be wealthy forever. His wife convinces him it is time to go. So he goes and he travels in this terribly arduous journey. He gets to this island. And the first day he's there, he's his eyes are popping out of his head. The diamonds are all over the place. Tremendous, beautiful, colorless diamonds, flawless. So he's picking up diamond after diamond after diamond. He's putting them in his bags. And people start laughing at him and pointing at him. And he's like, wait, what's so funny? And they're like, well, diamonds? Like, why would you possibly collect diamonds? There are a dime a dozen, right? They're all over the place. Why would you be collecting diamonds? That's not valuable. So he said, well, well, then what is valuable? And they said, well, what's valuable on this island is chicken schmaltz. Uh, you know, you guys know what chicken schmaltz is. Chicken schmaltz is rendered fat of, a, of, um, of chicken. It comes from chicken skins. You take the fats, basically, and you render it in a frying pan until it turns into this a glutinous mass. Um, for some people, it's a delicacy. If anybody has been uh, 
interested in it ever, they should know that Piazza's market, and I think Molly Stone's also actually has a little container of chicken schmaltz. I have a friend who's a restauranter and he says, chicken schmaltz, he puts it on everything and everybody wants to know a secret ingredient and it's chicken schmaltz. Anyways, that being said, chicken schmaltz is not an expensive product. However, on this island, chicken schmaltz is very expensive. So everyone tells him, what are you collecting diamonds? What are you nuts? Chicken schmaltz. So he sets up an operation and he starts producing chicken schmaltz. He's producing, he's producing, he's working hard and he's slowly but surely he's gathering the chicken schmaltz. Obviously it is expensive to raise chickens here or else it wouldn't be that expensive to have chicken schmaltz. But he, he invests, slowly builds up his operation. After two years abroad and the one year journey back, four years away from his family, he comes back and he has these bags, he's loaded down the bags and he's bent over and his wife is all excited. Finally, the sacrifices that the family has made, he's coming back with the diamonds. And she smells something. Diamonds don't typically smell. So she says, what is that awful smell? And he says, what do you mean? I went and I got pounds and pounds, tens of pounds of chicken schmaltz. And she looks at him and faints on the spot. It says, after she is resuscitated or wakes up again, she says, what are you crazy? Chicken schmaltz? I make chicken schmaltz every day, right? The point of the parable is to express that it is important for us to recognize that the values that one system holds dear is not necessarily the values that another system holds dear. And before we can really judge a society or a religion or a system of rules, we have to first figure out what are the priorities in that system of rules or else it doesn't make sense to have any sort of judgment of what it is that they are attempting to do. So that's what we're gonna to try to do tonight. We're gonna to try to ascribe a value system for Judaism. If one were to walk into the Beit HaMikdash, into the temple, may it, rebuilt, may, it re, may it be rebuilt soon in our days, right? So what they would see is they would walk into the first section and they would walk into the next section, a section upon which non-Jews are not allowed to travel past. And as they get further in, they would see the most awe-inspiring sight. They would see 15 short steps and they would see individuals dressed in beautiful, beautiful garments. According to the Rambam, according to Maimonides, they were wearing some sort of a linen tunic. On top of that, they were wearing a garment that the Hassam Sofer, of Moshe Sofer explains, was made out of two different types of thread. It was made out of techeles and argaman. Techeles, we know, is the blue string that is supposed to be reflective of the throne of God, right? That was one of the colors of the garment that they wore. The other color of the garment that they wore was Argaman. Argaman is purple, a beautiful royal purple wool. And we see them and they are tall, handsome men. And they're standing there with these instruments, musical instruments, and they're playing a beautiful, awe-inspiring music, right? We would think, wow, that's the pinnacle. These are the members of the orchestra, that's the pinnacle. If we progress further into the temple, what we would see is some individuals scurrying around and cleaning ashes off of the altar, the ashes of the previous day's offerings. We would see individuals with a fork, like a long fork and turning over the different body parts of animals that are sitting on the altar and in the fire, making sure they're all getting burnt properly. An outside observer would say, who has a more valuable role? I think most of us would immediately assume that individuals wearing these beautiful royal garments those are the ones who have an important role in Judaism. The people who are turning stuff over on the fire, they're like the waiters, they're like the chefs, they, they, they don't have a really important role, right? But obviously the reality is that's not true. The individuals with the beautiful garments, the individuals with the, uh, playing the music as the service is going on inside the temple, those are the Levium. That's the second tier. The upper tier 
would be the Kohanim, the priests. And a Kohen is the only person who is permitted to actually turn over the limbs on the altar, is the only person who is permitted to remove the ashes from the altar after the previous day's offerings have been burnt. But that's the only thing, that's what a Kohen does, right? Initial reaction, we would think that the Kohen is on a lower level, Levite is on a higher level. Once we think about it, and once we get a perspective, obviously we know the Kohanim are on a higher level. It goes even further. And I think Lori Lewis would be able to say this doing the Dapiomi. The Dapiomi last week, uh, on Shabbos, I think it was, the Dapiomi described how is it that a regular Kohen, a regular Kohen, a priest, we know, is a descendant of Aaron. How does a regular priest reach the level of becoming a Kohen Gadol, the high priest? There's only one of them. How does one reach that level? So the Talmud tells us in the Dapiomi recently, the Talmud tells us that if they have nothing else to do, if they have no other service that will inaugurate them, initiate them in their new role, they actually will turn over the offerings on the, the altar. Right? That will be the way in which they become, graduate from being a regular Kohen to a Kohen Gadol, to a high priest. Now, when it comes to offering a sacrifice, if somebody would be asked, what is the most important role of offering a sacrifice? Presumably, it would be in the actual taking of the life of the animal. That would be our assumption. But the Torah teaches not like that. The Torah and the Zohar, especially the Kabbalah, especially teaches us that when it comes to different roles, the Kohen, the priest, is not actually supposed to slaughter the animal. A Israelite is supposed to slaughter the animal. What I'm trying to express with these concepts is it is incredibly important to first recognize what we hold dear, what we hold valuable, and then assess the role that a woman plays based on that assessment, based on that paradigm of what's valuable. Because if we try to assess it based on the paradigm that society has imposed upon us, we might get a very different perspective. And as we know, famous Talmudic passage teaches that there was a, an Amora's son, right? One of the sages' sons had a near-death experience, an NDE, in which he goes up to heaven, and then he comes back down. And after he comes back down from heaven, his father says to him, what did you see up there? Did you have a near-death experience? And he says to his father, indeed, I did. What was the experience? Well, I saw that that which we value in society down below is exactly the opposite up above. The people who are no longer with us. I remember when I was with them in this world, I thought that they were up. Oh, they were the people, they were what we call the schleppers, right? They were the people who did not play a very important, very essential role. And then in the world to come, I saw that they do play an essential role. So once again, the same concept is true. I'm just trying to hammer this point home. It's a very critical point because we are inundated with a message that is far different than what Judaism truly has to offer, okay? So we need to recognize that before we can make our assessment. Now, what does secular society value, right? So I think if we would make our assessment based on who gets paid the most money, right? What we would find is if you are a basketball player, if you are a movie actor, if you are an Instagram influencer, right? These are things that are very, very valuable. But I think I don't have to explain that in truth, the fact that society will pay money for those roles, that does not necessarily deterministic of what Judaism holds dear, right? I think that's important to recognize. But it's also difficult for us to really appreciate that because that is the message that we are inundated with at all times, right? That that is what's truly valuable. And it's important for us to take that step back and recognize that. Now, if you look at society based on who is able to make a difference in the world, who is able to be the most recognized individual, right? And his face is on all billboards across America, right? 
Um, although in Palo Alto, I've, I've noticed that there are no billboards ever advertising movies. When you go to LA, I went to LA last week, there are, there are billboards advertising movies and nothing else. In Palo Alto, it's billboards advertising software companies. Interesting in terms of what the value system is in different parts of California. Um, th that being said, if that is our value system, it's completely unsurprising that secular society would make the assessment that Judaism treats women as second class. Because if this assessment is in terms of what they are able to do, what's their visible role in impacting the society around them and impacting the world? Well, we know women don't necessarily have a very visible role in traditional Judaism. And if the, if the assessment is, what's, what can I see them do? Is not that much. Okay, must be, ergo, they are treated as second-class citizens. Before we make that assessment, we have to figure out what exactly does Judaism value? So I think what Judaism values is Torah and mitzvot, the spreading of the Torah and its continuity throughout the generations, spirituality slash holiness, which is a little bit of a uh, amorphous phrase, right? And certainly a relationship with God. So given that set of values that Judaism expresses, then let's take a deeper look at what role women have in terms of what Judaism actually values. In terms of spirituality, are women as spiritually capable as men? We have a concept in Kabbalah and in the Midrash in Hasidut. We talk about the different types of the creations of Hashem. We talk about what is called the, the four categories of creation. We have the Domeim, the Tzomeach, the Chai, and the Midaber. I'll now explain what they are. Domeim are inanimate objects, a rock, water. That's a domain. That's the lowest level of creation. The second level of creation is called a tzomeach. Tzomeach means something that grows. Rock does not grow, right? Earth does not, it, it, it itself does not grow. What grows are, are inanimate objects that can grow. For example, fruits, grass, vegetables. There are objects that can grow, that can change their existence, but they are still inanimate objects. The level higher than that would be called a chai, something that has a animation to it. So an animal, right? That's animate, right? And, and to, me, to include in that, we can include jellyfish. We can include any type of animal that has a level of animation, a level of thought in its mind, right? Then we get to the highest level. The highest level is what we call a midaber, something who's able to speak. We don't refer to the ability to speak per se, that is a stand in it as a proxy for free will, right? Just to be clear, just because parrots have the ability to speak does not necessarily mean that they will reach the level, this higher level of creation, which we call the Nidaber. Now, if you look back at the creation of the universe, what you will find is that the lower level creatures, creations, I should say, are created earlier in the week. And as we progress further towards Shabbat, you get to a higher level of creation, right? What is the Second to last creature, mankind. What is the final creature? Women. So following this idea of saying that as we progress closer to Shabbat, we reach a higher, more refined level of creation. And we go from the domain, the inanimate objects who are un, unchanging, to the tzomeach, to the objects that are changing but yet inanimate, to the objects that are high, that have some level of animation, to the objects that are midaber, the final object, the final creature is actually women. So that itself indicates to us the value that women are ascribed to in, in the Jewish system. 
Rav Hirsch explains, and I want, I want to read this, it's a beautiful idea. Rav Hirsch says, he points out something very fascinating. When you look at the phrase that Hashem uses in the Torah after man has been created, the phrase that is used is lo tov heyot ha'adam levado e'eselo ezer kinegdo. Traditionally, we translate this as, it is not good for man to be alone, God speaking here, therefore I will make for him a helper opposite him. Rev Hirsch points out, that's not what it says. It doesn't say, lo tov li'adam li'hayot levado. It doesn't say it is not good for man to be alone. It says, lo tov hayot adam levado. In other words, it is not good, kama, because man is alone. After different days of the creation, Hashem tells us, the Torah tells us, Hashem then proclaimed, it is good, right? Rev Hirsch says that before God creates women, the world is not good. The world has not reached the apex of the purpose of creation. It is only after women are created that the world has attained that. The completion of the good was not man, but woman. Only when woman was created was the good completed for man and for the entire world. Okay, so that's in terms of like an overall perspective of what the Torah itself expresses. The Torah expresses not just the importance, but that that is the pinnacle of creation are women. So that's point number one to understand that. And the reason why that's important to bring into, into, uh, into like focus right away is because that will help us understand that the value system will work out properly. Now, what else does Judaism value? Certainly Torah and Torah learning. So let's go through some of the sources. Let me share the source sheet. So what we have is like this, source number one. Source number one is on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt. This is in Exodus 19.6. On that very day, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Having journeyed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped there in front of the mountain and Moshe went up to God. The Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel. Okay, so let's look at source number two. This is Rashi, Rashi, the preeminent commentator on the Torah. He says, Thus shalt thou say, in this, the Hebrew language, and in this form of words, Lebet Yaakov to the house of Jacob, this denotes the woman. To them you shall speak in gentle language. Tomar, right, the phrase Aleph Memresh is always implies a more gentle way of speaking. Daber or Tagid implies a more uh, harsh way of speaking. When you are speaking in the Beit Yaakov to the house of Jacob, to the woman, speak in gentle language. To the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, we explain to the men the punishments and the details of the commandments in words that are as hard as warm wood. This is what the Talmud teaches. Now, I want to get into this a little bit deeper. Okay, we're going to see something more about this. In the Mechilta, the Midrash explains, give the women the broader topics and speak to the children of Israel, speak in detail to the men. So it seems to be saying, give over the general value system to women, and then the details speak to the men. But let's see, which one's more important? Is it more important to give over the values? Is it more important to give over the details? So look right here. Shemot Rabbah explains. So you shall say to Beit Yaakov, these are the women, and say to B'nai Israel, why to the women first? Because they are careful in the commandments. Also, so that they will guide their children to Torah. This right here is an incredibly important idea. 
that we're trying to express. The role of a woman, the role of women at large in guiding people in the proper path. So this is a little bit of a longer source. Um, it, it's just so, to me, it's, it's, so, um, it's so incredible that I, I, I don't want to skip it. It is the Darash Moshe, which is sort of Moshe Feinstein, right? Who was born in Russia in 1891 in Luban, Russia, and came to America in the 1930s, lived on the Lower East Side until he passed away in 1985. He was probably the greatest posik, the greatest halakhic decisor that lived in America, okay? And he asks a question. Why did God tell Moshe to address the women first? If men are obligated in more mitzvot than women, right? Why is it that Hashem says, first speak to the women, then speak to the men, right? Women have the general broad topics, the general value system, and men have the details. It should have been the opposite. The Torah is given forever for all generations. And on this, God wanted that we ourselves work to ensure that the Torah and its commandments will remain relevant for all generations. Because there will never again be another mass revelation of the Torah to all of Israel. This is possible only through the education in Torah and its commandments of our sons and daughters. And this education isn't something which can be done haphazardly, that when they become obligated in mitzvot, we should command them to begin keeping the Torah, and they will just do so. Because at that point, it's already too late. They have already become accustomed to listen to their desires, and it will be too difficult for the vast majority of people to change their ways. Rather, this education is something which has to be started at the earliest possible time. And this is something which can only be undertaken by the mothers who are raising their children, providing their physical needs, and are also then enjoined with providing their spiritual needs. This is the reason why God tells Moshe before giving the Jews the Torah, that he should explain what the Torah is to the women first. For it is only through the women that the Torah will be accepted in all the generations. So who plays a more critical role in ensuring the continuity of the Torah, right? It, it, and recognizing that there will never again be a mass revelation of the Torah. Who is going to play a more pivotal, a more fundamental role? The answer is that women will play a more fundamental role. So in terms of saying, is the role that a woman plays more important, the same important, less important? Well, we're seeing right away in the fact that the Torah says, first speak to the woman, then only afterwards speak to the men. The way the sages understood this is that a woman's role in ensuring the proper continuity, the proper conveyance of the Torah to the next generation, and the ability for the masses to keep the Torah is critical, okay? So I think it's okay to say at this point that they certainly play a very critical role. Now, I think maybe people might be bothered by, well, if that is so, then why don't women have the same obligation as men do to learn Torah, right? If indeed that's part of their role, and in fact, it's more essential on some level, to give over the, the spirit of the Torah. Why don't they have a specific commandment to learn the Torah? And that itself would seem to be an indication that they don't have, they're not valued as much as men. So I wanna show you two Talmudic passages, right? The, the, the Talmud, that, that uh, bastion of a feminist uh, progressive movement, right? What exactly the Talmud has to say about women's values. The Talmud teaches in Brachot, Rav was wont to say, the world to come is not like this world. In the world to come, there is no eating, no drinking, no procreation, no business negations, no jealousy, no hatred, and no competition. Rather, the righteous sit with their crowns upon their heads, enjoying the splendor of the divine presence, as it is stated, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Meaning that beholding God's countenance is tantamount to eating and drinking. The Gemara states, greater is the promise for the future made by the Holy One, blessed be he, to women than to men. As it is stated, rise up women at ease. Hear my voice, confident daughters. Listen to what I say. This promise of ease and confidence is not given to men. It's only given to women. 
Rav said to Rabbi Chia, by what virtue do women merit to receive this reward? What is it that they are actually going to be in a higher level? They will be judged at having reached a higher level in the world to come than men. Abihiya answered, they merit this reward for bringing their children to read the Torah in the synagogue and for sending their husbands to study Mishnah in the study hall and for waiting for their husbands until they return from the study hall. Now, to be clear, we are not trying to express that this is only true if they actually have children or actually have a husband. What we're trying to express is the role that women play as facilitators can be more important than the role of the individual who actually carries out the action. And this is something that the Talmud expresses elsewhere, as we'll see in Source 7. Rabbi Elazar says, one who causes others to perform a meritorious act is greater than one who performs that act himself, as it is stated, and the causing of righteousness shall be peace, and the work of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So if you cause righteousness, you get peace as a reward, which is the highest reward. If you are the one who works at it, then you get quiet and assurance. It's not the same level. So the fact of the matter is, if one would say, I don't want to be the facilitator. I don't want to sit in the back, right? I want to be the one in the front. I want to be the one who's recognized for the values that they, for the merit and the importance that they bring to the world, right? Perhaps that is a legitimate gripe sometimes, but it's important to recognize that the person who creates the ability for others to perform is greater than the person who actually performs that himself. The Talmud tells us again and again, when it comes to supporting, I'll give you a great example. When it comes to supporting people who are in need of charity. So there's a power, there's a hierarchy, right? Who goes first? When it comes to supporting your parents, then one is enjoined to give all of their charity to their parents first, right? But if it comes to supporting their teacher who taught them Torah, that actually comes first. Why? Because Judaism does not say those who cannot do teach, right? I'm looking at, at Lori Myers right now. Judaism does not say those who cannot do teach. Judaism says teaching is the greatest thing that you can do, right? And doing is on a lesser level than teaching, right? That's an important thing to recognize, right? The value system, as I said, it, in the secular world, there's this concept of those who cannot do teach. Once again, that is not the way Judaism looks at that at all. So when it comes to trying to figure out what should be valued, I go back to the point about when you walk into the temple, you would see the Levite, you would think, oh, the Levite's on a higher level. And you would see the Kohen and think that they're on a lower level, right? The Kohen, what do they do after all? They basically walk around and they clean up the ashes and they're basically a glorified janitor. But the truth of the matter is that the Torah is teaching that the Kohen does a higher value, even though they are just facilitating the offerings of the regular Israelites. But that's still a highest level that one can reach. So we see once again, to facilitate is the most important thing. Now, what is it that God wants us to be? God wants us to be a mamlechas kohanim, right? A nation of priests, the goy kadosh, right? A holy nation. Now, this is our mission, and it's a mission that women are clearly very integral to, as we've just read. So I think to summarize, right, we would say Judaism values spirituality and Torah, and certainly the giving over and continuity of the Torah. And in both of these categories, women are equally valued in. So Judaism is passed through the woman, and it's the most important value in Judaism is the continuity of the Torah. Now, if you look at the secular world and you said, what's the most valuable thing? You make, make, make a, an assessment of, do women have an equal role in, in, uh, you know, in, in the STEM fields, right? What feminism has done for the world, and, and it's done some amazing things in terms of getting women the ability to vote and, and things in that nature and so on and so forth. But what it's also done is it has created this idea that the only way for women to be equal 
is for the women's roles to be devalued and for women to be able to attain the same achievements that males are able to attain in their fields. And that's a mistake. Maybe it should have been the other way around. Maybe it should have been, we need men to be able to attain the same roles that women can attain. Instead of saying, why is it that there's not as many women in the STEM fields? Maybe we should say, why is it that there's not as many men in nursing fields, in teaching fields, right? But we don't say that. Why aren't there scholarships for men to teach? There are scholarships for women in the STEM fields. That, that is a way to assess what society holds dear. And, and because of the feminist movement, a lot of that has changed. And a lot of that has become the sense of what men do is important, what women does is not important by definition. And therefore the only way to achieve equality is for women to achieve an equal playing field in those specific uh, fields. But Judaism does not believe that. And Judaism believes that what women do is as equal or perhaps even on a greater level as we saw in terms of Rev Hirsch's commentary about where they are created, that they are what brings the good into the world. In terms of what the Torah tells us, that they should be addressed before men are addressed. We see that women might have a greater role to play than men have to play. Now, some of you might be asking, I did a little bit of sleight of hand over here. I started off by saying we're going to address why it is that men say Shaloh Asani Isha and women say Shasani Kiritsono. I did not answer that at all. I just went into a rant about what it is that women, what their roles are and what men's roles are. Right? So I think I want to express it like this. A man's role in this world is more forward-facing. A man's role in this world is to have a physical impact on this world. I'll give you a very clear proof to this concept. A man is born, he needs a rectification. He needs a physical rectification. Women do not need a physical rectification. That is expressive, reflective of the fact that the woman's role is more of an internal role. It is not an external facing role. It is not a role in which they need to be recognized for what they are doing, right? It is a behind the scenes role, right? And that role is a, just as critical, if not more critical. A man, as a man, I get up in the morning and I say a blessing that God has not created me a woman. I am expressing my thanks for the privilege of being able to have more commandments, more opportunities to connect to God. Women are created without needing that many opportunities to connect to God. Women are created on a higher spiritual plane. Their spirituality, their holiness, their connective uh, tissue to God is more internally focused. And we can express this in many different ways, how we find this to be true in terms of the physicality as well. But what we're trying to say is, is that once again, if we are judging by society's understanding, we would come up with the wrong answer. And if we're judging by the blessing and saying, well, men after all say, thank you for not having made me a woman, we are expressing our thanks for having more opportunities to do mitzvot. But if women are created on a higher level where they don't require as many rectifications, they cannot express their thanks for giving him more opportunity. They don't have more opportunities. However, they express their thanks for God having created me exactly the way he wanted me to be. I don't need to change as much as men need to change. Men need to change more than women. So you can look at that as one of two ways. You could say you're already reaching a higher level, right? Or you could say men have more opportunity for change. So for men, we're going to say we have more opportunity for change. For women, they're going to say, I am exactly the way God wants me to be. In the world to come, when we achieve the highest level of connection to God, there will be no more change. Right? No longer will, will women be changing no, at all. No longer will men be changing. It's not possible anymore. We'll be in the world of the soul where the change is not possible. Is that to say that that will be a lower level? Of course not. Men are created first on a lower level in that paradigm, in the spectrum of what it is that we are supposed to be accomplishing our mission in this world. 
women are created second on a higher level and do not require the same rectification, but they are created exactly the way that God wants them to create them. And that is the reason why we have different blessings. And I think if you go through all of the different laws and all of the different roles that women play in Judaism that are different than men's roles, I think you will find that almost all of the questions will be answered if we use this principle to help define for us what's truly important, what's not important, and what the roles are really supposed to look like and why it is that men have this and women have this. And I think that would really help people in, that, in, that, uh, in, in this process. Okay, any questions? I guess I left too much time. Rabbi Grossman, yeah. um, so thank you for the, the beautiful lecture and, and I believe everything you said, but um, the optics aren't good and it would have worked for the, the blessing to be Shasani Kirtsono for men also. Um, our sages who wrote these blessings were very, very wise and I would imagine they could have anticipated that this would be a subject of controversy for many generations going forward. So I'm just wondering why they, is there a reason that they would have written it like this, knowing what they know about human nature? Um, this is probably, I don't know, like the fourth or fifth class I've been to on this topic. And I'm imagining that they could have anticipated that this would be something when you're equating Shaloh Asani Goy, Shaloh Asani Aved, Shaloh Asani Isha, right? Like it, it just doesn't look good. I hear you're saying loud and clear. Can I follow up with a follow-up question to sure. Lori? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you. This is a great topic. Um, I think the other problem is, while I agree with everything you're saying, in that prayer, it almost sets up a, 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 a second-class citizen by virtue of that prayer. I mean, you know, if I may be bold, I mean, you just look, where are women seated in, in, in a mechitza shul? They're usually seated in the back, on the sides, up above, et cetera. Now, th the problem is when you have a prayer like this, I think it's rife for setting up a situation where women for could be seen as second-class citizens. Yeah, I, I hear that loud and clear. I think that the, the reason why they are expressed in the negative, and we mentioned this last time also, is the concept, and this is not me, this is the uh, 15, uh, 15, uh, 16th century sage who suggested that the reason why these blessings are expressed in the negative and not in the positive is because it's difficult to say, thank you, God, for having created me in this world. And the reason for that is because the Talmud says it would be better for all of us had we not been created. The world is too difficult. It is very difficult to overcome our Yetzir Hara. It would be better if the soul would never have come into this world. I'm not trying to address that idea. That's a, it's a little bit of a twilight zone type of moment in terms of trying to wrap your mind around that idea. Well, then why did God create, like, what are we even saying over here? It's a little bit odd. That is what the Talmud says. Because of that, the sages wanted to allude to that by expressing these blessings in the negative. Now, in terms of the fact that women would then feel as second-class citizens. The only thing I could say is that in the sages' time, there was more of a sense of separate but equal. And we all have this visceral reaction to that of separate but equal, that makes no sense, right? It cannot be, we all have this reaction because of the Supreme Court case we're all, we all are familiar with. Um, but that being said, Judaism does believe that. Judaism believes we play different roles. The, the Midrash tells us that Aaron and Moshe are exactly the same level in terms of God's eyes. Now, how could it be? Moshe is this 
reveals the Torah to everyone. He is God's servant. And the answer is, once again, when Moshe Feinstein comes to the rescue, Aaron and Moshe both fulfilled their complete potential. God does not care about how high you've reached in this world. God cares about how far you've come from where you started. Okay. So if that is truly the perspective of everyone in this world, I think it would help a lot in terms of recognizing equal opportunities, right? Certainly equal outcome, not important in Judaism, right? Because outcome is not measured in this world. Outcome is measured in God's eyes. And even equal opportunity is not necessarily important in Judaism. Separate but equal is the primary, primary principle in, in Jewish faith, in Jewish thought. Um, in terms of women feeling uncomfortable, I completely get that. I do completely get that, um, that they would feel uncomfortable but sitting in the back. But the, the, it's important to recognize that the, the, the question over here is very simple. Who has an obligation to pray every day? Who has an obligation and can lead the, the tzibor, can lead the community in that obligation? And, and that's really the main question that's going to be at hand. And the question is on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, who has more people showing up to synagogue, right? That, that's the primary reason for that. I, I do understand and appreciate that it's not comfortable. And, and I do feel for that. But I, I think it once again is because our views are colored by societal value system in which whoever's at the front of the bus is the most important person. Whereas I think I've expressed somewhat clearly at this point that that's not necessarily true. Then in Judaism, the coin would be at the back of the bus, right? And the levy would be at the front of the bus. But we would say, oh, you know what? The one at the back of the bus, that's actually more valuable, right? So it's important to recognize just because there's an individual at the front of the room leading the group does not necessarily mean that they have any more value in God's eyes than the person at the back of the room has. I recognize that that's a, a tremendous shift, uh, almost like a, a, you know, a brain transplant type of shift. Um, but I think that is what the sages had in mind. I think that is what the sages, for them, this was understood. It was accepted that this is, of course, the priorities in life, right? I think that's what's going on over here. Any other questions? Thank you, Rabbi. This was really great. Okay, awesome. Okay, take care, everyone. If anybody wants to follow up on email or anything like that, please feel free to do so. I'm happy to answer or try to answer the questions and hopefully with Leah's help, I'll be, I'll be able to do a good job answering the questions. Yes, okay. Beautifully done. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you.